this is a real treat for me. Um, you know, since it's Father's Day weekend, you know, uh, my father is giving the message today, and so the first message. So I just like to welcome my father to the stage for the first message, and his message today is entitled Esther. Thank you, Owen. Makes me proud to see him up here song leading at such a young age. That's, that's great to see. And good afternoon to all of you. I hope you can hear me okay. In the back? Okay. Good. Yeah, I wanted to speak today about um, the book of Esther. And it's one of those books that, um, has, as people say, you know, that's, that's the one that doesn't mention God, isn't it? Or um, that's one of those books the Bible that we just don't go to or, or refer to. Or, uh, you know, how is that relevant to us? So these are all valid points. The book of Esther is definitely unique. And I wanted to talk about, about it today because it's, um, it's one we don't talk about a lot. And I may not do it justice, but I'm going to give it a go. There's many different angles you can take to look at it and talk about it. Um, but um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give it a go. So, and it, it is true... The book of Esther, along with the Song of Solomon, are the only ones in the Bible that don't mention God or any form of his name. Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, none of it is mentioned. And the book of Esther spans about 10 years in the reign of King Azasuerus. I'm not sure if I'll pronounce that right. Um, and he was also known as King Xerxes I by most historians. Um, and son of, I want to say, Darius the Great. Uh, and he reigned just 19 years from 486 BC to 465 BC. And it's funny how um, chronologically the, the Bible is, although these events are almost 300 years after King David. Um, Book of Esther is before the book of Psalms and before the book of Job. And it's just funny how the Bible is put together that way as we know it. Um, and the book is entirely set in Persia, uh, modern day Iran. Um, and it's pretty much mostly set in its capital city at the time where the king lived um, in the city of, or citadel as it mentions in the book, of uh, uh, Shushan or Susa as it was also known. So who was Esther? Her story is almost fairy tale like. Um, she was an orphan who was raised by her older cousin Mordecai and she would one day become queen. Going from an orphan who had nothing raised by a cousin and then one day would become queen. And her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Um, but in Persia, she was known as both Esther and uh, Ishtar. And there were many Jews living in exile in Persia at the time, since they were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar several decades before, back to Persia from Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, 
But we don't know the number of Jews that were living in Persia. We don't know if it was 2,000 or 10,000 or even 500,000. And uh, there are also um, 10 chapters, 10 chapters in the book of Esther. So it's one of the shorter books. And I just wanted to run through um, and highlight the important and interesting parts of the story. I'm just going to read a few verses from uh, a few of the chapters. But it's interesting just to look at it and see what an integral part of the Bible this story is and how it all lays out into the history of um, great heroes and heroines of the Bible. And I think it's a very, very interesting story to look at. So in the first chapter of the book of Esther, um, it basically, I'm not going to read any verses from the first chapter, but I'm going to move this uh, lamp here so I'm going to wait a little bit. A king, Azahurus, holds a big feast in Shushan uh, for everyone. It says, both great and small, everyone was, um, was able to take part, uh, take part in this, uh, this feast. And it lasted uh, more than a week. But there's an interesting thing here, what happens here, which is going to take part in the story of Esther, is after seven days of feasting, uh, the king asked for his queen, Queen Vashti, to make an appearance and, and show herself before all of his important guests and dignitaries he had there. But the queen refused. Now, it doesn't exactly explain why she refused to come out. She wouldn't obey his order to come and see everyone. And what's amazing is, is that the king does not have a execute for completely disobeying him and not listening. So instead, she is sent out and put out into exile. And as happens in what happened back in the day in a lot of Middle East history, is uh, the queen has been put into exile and is no longer part of the royal household and a part of the king anymore. And so he has his people put a decree out for him to find himself a new queen. And so a decree is put out to all the kingdom that he, uh, he ruled there um, that the most beautiful virgins in all the kingdom should come before the king so he can choose a new queen. And in chapter 2, it explains how the decree went out and uh, many women gathered and it would take one year of preparation to go before the king. And a very, very thorough, long process. You had to get ready. You had to, uh, I mean, it says here, um, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king. So, very long process, and many, many women came and, and uh, were hoping they would become the new queen to the king. Um, but it also mentions in chapter 2 that Esther found favor with all those in the palace complex. And whenever it says in the Bible, found favor, it usually is talking about someone having a godly character. Someone who is good, kind, loving, honest. Someone who is pleasant to be around. But it also mentions mentions that she kept her true identity hidden as a Jew 
from everyone she came into contact with. Her cousin Mordecai did not want it put out there that she was a Jew. And it probably helped to get further along in the whole process by doing that. So I want to pick up the story here and read a few verses from chapter 2. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Two verses here. Esther chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Okay, if I can find my place here. Okay, so Esther was taken to King Azahurus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Seven years into his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So he'd found a new queen. Esther would become the new queen of Persia. And of all the women that had gone before, he liked her the most. She was the one he chose. So Esther, again, had gone from being a Jewish orphan, orphan girl to the queen of a powerful king. At the time, the most powerful king in that whole region. But this is where the story picks up and the plot thickens, as it were, from here. Mordecai, at the end of chapter 2, overhears two men planning to assassinate the king within the palace complex, um, where all the official business takes place. An inquiry was made by the king's officials, and it was confirmed, and the two men were executed for treason. And I'm going to pick it up here now in the next chapter. Now, that's an important part of this whole story, and I'll come back to that later. But I'm going to begin here. Um, let's go to chapter 3 of Esther, for those of you that are, are reading the, uh, the Bible today. Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. After these things, of what had happened at the end of chapter 2 of the, uh, the assassination attempt, after these things, King Azahurus promoted Haman, or Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. He would not do that. See, everybody would pay homage to Haman. Not Mordecai. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or paid him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. He was not a happy camper. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, 
Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azahurus, the people of Mordecai. So this, uh, you know, the villain, this is uh, the villain of the book of Esther. Haman, or as he's called by some people, Haman. But there could be a reason for his hatred of the Jews. And uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt from my, my study of Bible about this, because this is an important part of, potentially, parts of his reason why he hated the Jews so much. So I'm going to read this, these uh, few words here. Quote, Some believe Agagite, because it says Haman, uh, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Agagite is a reference to the historical district of Agag, within the Persian Empire. Others believe this term more likely linked Haman's descent with the Amalekites. These people, descendants of Esau, were ancient enemies of the Hebrews. Agag, a king of the Amalekites, was captured by King Saul. If Mordecai descended from King Saul, which it, it says here in the book of Esther, and Haman from the Amalekites, as many rabbis believe, then what follows is the continuation of a long-standing hostility between their families. So you see, it makes a lot more sense when you look at it that way. That he was descended from the Amalekites, who were one of the peoples that God told Joshua to destroy. And when they got to the promised land, and they had constant battles with him. And so, um, and here in verse 2 and, and the, the verses after that, all the, I'm continuing on reading this excerpt here. All the officials of the king were on duty within the king's gate. Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And the reason he did that, to comprehend the force of this verse, we need to look at verse 4, uh, where it says, when they spoke to him daily and asked him why he didn't do this. There Mordecai reportedly told the king's servants that he was a Jew. It is not known whether the bowing was required as an act of worship to the king's man or merely as an overt sign of deep respect. The Hebrew verbs in this passage usually describe the worship of God. There were occasions when Hebrews bowed before kings or high officials without any violation of the prohibition of false worship. It may be that in Mordecai's case also, the bow was not to be a religious act, but one of honor. As a Jew, Mordecai may not have been able to bring himself to show this sign of respect to one was an ancestral enemy. And Mordecai's daily refusal to bow down to Haman filled the official with such rage that he sought to kill all Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And Haman's Amalekite ancestry would account for his deep hatred. So when you read that and, and hear that, it would explain that Haman or Haman already had a hatred for the Jews. And now that this Jewish guy was not paying him homage as he thought he should, and paying him respect. He thought, okay, well, I'm going to show this guy who's, who's boss around here, and we'll, we'll do something about this. So, as we go on in chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, just verses 8 and 9 here too, So because this, this is the next continuation of the story here. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Azahurus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. 
Now, he didn't mention what people it was. He just said there is a people that are not obeying your laws and doing their own thing. This perks the king's interest. Well, people not, not do what I want them to do and what they should be doing. I don't like the sound of that, Haman. What should we do? So Haman's hatred of the Jews and Mordecai drives him to get the king to sign a decree that all Jews must be killed and all their possessions taken in the entire kingdom of Persia. Very reminiscent of the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. A decree sent out that all Jews must be destroyed, every man, woman, and child. So moving on into chapter 4, the news gets out because the decree is sent out to all four corners of the provinces and the kingdoms. And Mordecai and all the Jews are weeping and wailing. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 4, that laying in sackcloth and ashes, Mordecai was, a visible sign of mourning and feeling of desolation. So I want to read uh, Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, because this now becomes another interesting twist in the story here. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So there's a bit of conversation now between, and, and some contact between, communication between Esther and Mordecai about this whole decree that has gone out and what the next plan of action would be. And Mordecai told, in verse 13, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Esther's a, the servants and officials who are helping write the communications, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I, merit, I perish. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So she said, that decided, she had decided that the time had come to reveal her true identity to the king and plead for her people. And in the meantime, as she's doing this and this communication is going on, Haman uh, consults with his people and his wife, and they decide to erect a 50-foot gallows for hanging the people, the Jews, in and around Shushan, the capital, so his evil plots continue. Uh, in chapter 6, we see a ray of hope, though, in this story. Okay, let's move on here to Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. So, that night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's units, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Azahurus, the two men that had plotted to kill the king. Then the king said, What honor or 
dignitary has been bestowed on Mordecai for doing this. And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court at the moment? Who is here in the complex right now? This must have been late night or the wee hours. And now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to the king, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in and see me. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done, Haman, for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman's probably thinking, oh, oh he's talking about me here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, wise things should happen to something that you should honor. Here we go. So now, now Haman thought in his heart, whom will the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, well, okay, for the man who the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade that man, that person, on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king, king delights to honor. And verse 10 then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And Haman must have been thinking, Oh man, what have I done? <laughs> so, this must have made me even more angry and perplexed, thinking the honor would go to him, and instead it goes to his enemy, Mordecai. So Mordecai is given a reprieve here by the king. And it also says in my study Bible that I guess the king at times when he would feel he couldn't sleep or he had a headache, he would like to have the chronicles of the history of the, the nation read out to him. And that's why his servants read that issue about the, the assassination and how Mordecai had made the report and uh, found out the identity. So, but Haman's game is up in chapter 7 of the book of Esther as, uh, as Esther comes before the king and pleads for her Jewish people. The time has come, like I said a few minutes ago, she would have to reveal her true identity and say, what is going on here? So this now is a very important part of the story here. So, Esther chapter 7, let's, uh, let's read verses 1 through 6 first. Okay. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half of the kingdom. It shall be done. Whatever you want, even up to half of the kingdom. I'll give it to you. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, 
I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Azahurus answered and sent to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked man, Haman or Haman. And he must have been there too at, the, at this uh, get-together. So, she points out to the king, Haman is the one who did this. And Haman is rightly terrified at this point. Um, and he pleads for his life to Esther. The king has to take a breath a moment because they've been talking to Haman the last uh, couple of years as a trusted aide and put a lot of trust in him. The decree had gone out. Although, as I mentioned earlier, the king didn't know who the decree was to destroy and to kill. So it says that he goes out into his, uh, the palace garden, takes a breather for a few minutes, and this whole time, uh, Haman is pleading with Esther, please, please, please. Uh, but let's go back in uh, and read verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke, good, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. I guess they could see it from where they were at at this time of the king's complex. Then the king said, hang him on it. The game is up, son. You're going to hang on your own gallows. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So Haman, his evil plot was over. He planned to hang not only Mordecai, but every other Jew he could get his hands on, on the gallows he had erected, and he ended up being hung on those same gallows himself. Reminiscent of uh, <coughs> Guillotine, the French man who invented the guillotine, was in the end beheaded by his own uh, device that he invented back in the French Revolution. So... Um, uh, let's get back here to this for a second. So, uh, yeah, it's carrying on the story. Um, in chapter 8, the Jewish people are spared. And it tells of how a new decree is sent out, a reversal of the laws against the Jews. And Esther gives Mordecai Haman's old house as a... Uh, as a, as a gift in the sense of, of all the good that he had done. And it must have been a fine big house. So, um, And in chapter 9, uh, the title for the chapter is The Jews Destroyed Their Tormentors. Um, so the Jews basically went out and killed all those who had planted and capture and killed the Jews. For as it says in, uh, in verse 4, on second... Uh, in verse 4 of uh, chapter 9, For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and he became increasingly prominent. And chapter 9 also uh, talks about the Feast of Purim. And this is when the Feast of Purim became a big Jewish um, festival. And I'll just briefly ch uh, tell you about that and what it, what, it's, uh, what it means and why it's celebrated. 
Uh, the Feast of Purim is celebrated and respected by the Jews. Um, and what they do is they read or listen to the Megillah, which is the book of Esther, twice, once at night and once during the day. Uh, they don they uh, donate charity to the poor. They exchange gifts of food. And they have a, a feast, like a sadat, like they do for a Passover. And um, and this is a little thing here about what they eat. For Ashkenazi Jews, perhaps the most widely held food tradition on Purim is eating triangular-shaped foods, such as kreplak and hamantashen pastries. Kreplak are pasta triangles filled with ground beef or chicken, and hamantashen are triangles of pastry dough surrounding a filling, filling often made with dates or poppy seeds. So there's a savory one and a sweet one. It sounds, all sounds tasty. Sounds good. So, um, and then the book of Esther concludes in chapter 10. A very small chapter, just three verses. Chapter 10. Let's just read that real quick. Just three verses. Chapter 10 to conclude the book of Esther. And King Azahurus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might... And the account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Azahurus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. So there it is, the story of the book of Esther. So although God is not mentioned directly, his hand is seen everywhere in the book. As George, as George Washington called it, the, the hand of providence is guiding a lot of the events in the book of Esther. And uh, he helped, God helped change people's minds in some of these Issues and stories. Mordecai overhearing the plot against the king. And Hamas, Haman's plot being stopped. And him being killed rather than Mordecai or Esther. And so a lot of people may wonder. So why was the book of Esther if it doesn't mention God or the Lord? Why is it even in the book of the Bible? And um, the importance of the canon. And I'm just going to read another excerpt here from my study Bible. The book, of, quote, the book of Esther has held an important place in the canon due to its strong testimony to God's providence and protection of his people. However, the book has been challenged by some. One of the main points in the dispute is the remarkable fact that neither the word God nor God's name Yahweh is found in the book. There are two explanations that may have viewed the Jewish people. Oh, okay, sorry. There are two explanations that may account for this. Okay. First, it may be a result of the author's chosen point of view. The author might have viewed the Jewish people who remained in Persia and did not return to the land of Israel as a people cut off from the principal blessings of God. Thus, the absence of God's name in the book might be a way of expressing God's distance from the exiles. At the same time, the book clearly reveals God's surprising protection of them. And secondly, the, second, the author may have written the book in the form of a Persian state chronicle in order to explain to the Persians the Jewish celebration of Purim. Uh, 
In accordance with this style, the author emphasizes the king's name, titles, and lists, but writes about the Jewish people in a detached tone. This could help explain why the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not directly mention God. So, those who did create the canon for all the books in the Bible, they could be a couple of reasons. But the story itself, you know, Esther was a woman who fought for her people against all the odds. There she was, just an orphan Jewish girl who came from nothing and become queen. And she loved the Jewish people and her heritage that she was willing to sacrifice herself for them. Because, you know, what if the king had turned on her and refused when she pleaded at that time? But he listened, and everything went, went well, and everything worked out. So it goes to the bigger story, or the lesson we can learn today as Christians from this, as we read this great, as we read this great story of Esther. Prayer and fasting work. Now, it may not happen in our time frame when we want it to happen, but it will happen. The prayer, I've seen prayer work in my life many, many times, in many of my family's lives, in one way or another. Um, but when we want our prayers to be heard by Jesus Christ, they will be. And he is our intercessor to the Father. Those prayers are then passed on to the Father. And finally, one day, as it says in the book of Revelations, will we have to sacrifice ourselves for one of our brothers or sisters in Christ? Because as the persecution is mentioned in Revelations, as it ramps up at the time before Christ's return, that could happen. And if it does, let's make sure, like Esther, like Mordecai, we're ready, that we're strong in our faith and spiritually equipped to withstand all that is thrown at us. And so that, that wraps up the story of Esther. Um, and I've, I've purposely done these, my last three uh, messages, on these stories in the Bible because on Gideon, um, David's friend Jonathan, and now the book of Esther, because they're the stories that we don't always look at and read about. And Esther was one of the books that I've never really uh, referred to in any messages I've, I've heard growing up in the church. Uh, it's, it's briefly mentioned, you, you hear some of the stories, but it's good just to look at some of these stories and to read how they're relevant to us, how the message is still true and relevant today, thousands of years later, and how it can play a part in our, our Christian journey, and, uh, and how it can also inspire us and see with the, the power of prayer, how God's hand is definitely working in our lives. And of course... Nothing, nothing miraculous or amazing as some of the stories out in the Bible happen visibly today, like the, the part of the Red Sea. I know. But God is still there working, and his plan is still going forward. And Jesus Christ will return, whether that's 10 years, 30 years, 40 years, in our lifetime or not. Jesus Christ is going to return. And these stories were put in the Bible for us to remember, to look at, to reflect on, talk about, debate, understand, and just 
appreciate everything that God does for us. So I hope that's been a help to you and an interesting. And I'll give it back to Owen.